Hello and welcome to HFMA Talk, the podcast for NHS finance. I'm Mark Orchard, Chief Financial Officer at Portsmouth Hospital's University NHS Trust. I'm really pleased to be hosting this series of HFMA Talk in conversation with, where I get to indulge my curiosity of people and ask some of my current and former NHS colleagues about their backgrounds and what drives them. I'll be talking to a range of people in these podcasts, working across all sectors and geographies. And in this episode, I'm joined by Paul Bauman, CBE, former Chief Financial Officer, of course, for NHS England, and currently the Receiver General and Chapter Clerk for Westminster Abbey, which is in effect the Abbey's Chief Executive. With a career that has included 11 years in the NHS, and before that, a further 22 years of experience of international financial management and strategic leadership at Unilever, I am beyond delighted to welcome you to listen in on our conversation this afternoon, which I am sure will be one of the most interesting and varied that we will have on this series. Paul, welcome. I am so pleased you're able to join me this afternoon. How are you? Really good, Mark, and it's great to connect to you again. We had great fun together in our time in the NHS, so it's good to see you in such good form. It's been a funny time for me with the NHS at the moment, so much in the headlines and doing such a brilliant job of coping with all the crises that are on there at the moment. So it's really good to reconnect with that. Ah, oh, thank you, Paul. And I, do you know, I can't believe it's been two and a half years uh, since you left the NHS. It's, I don't know where that time's gone. Let's make a start. I'm, I'm looking at your CV in front of me and I literally, Paul, cannot think of anyone who would have achieved these two things side by side, right? So, so first up, uh, the sheer variety of organisations that you've served in terms of Unilever, the NHS, and now Westminster Abbey, which appear to be completely wholly different worlds, but I'm sure you'll join some dots for me in a moment. But secondly, and probably equally as remarkably, is your stay in power. I mean, as I look back on your CV and career, and you know, you spent 22 years at Unilever, you know, another 11 years in the NHS, and you know, blimey, Paul, doing the maths, I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not really sure you're old enough, but looking back on your career, I'm just kind of wondering, did you have a plan? How did that work out for you? So this is the disappointing part of the interview because I've never, ever had a career plan. And I (laughs) honestly think it's important that people have the flexibility in their thinking about careers to take opportunities as they've come along. So I can't give you a story of any logic between my studying modern medieval languages, uh, my choosing to become a finance person, Unilever, the NHS, Westminster Abbey, all of those have just kind of come along as opportunities at the right time. In some cases, frankly, the opportunities have come along as a result of difficulties of one sort or another. We can talk about that if you want at some point. But I've just taken the opportunities as they've come. Um, There are some common themes. I mean, it's not quite as illogical as it might appear. Um, All of those three organisations have got very, very strong values that underpin them. Uh, I'm the product of a family of public servants and therefore in a a way the Unilever part of it was the odd thing to do as opposed to what I've done since. But Unilever is very much a big multinational company steeped in deep uh, both local and international roots and very much integrated into its communities. They're all very diverse businesses. I can't cope with too much boring single focus (laughs) stuff. So uh, I like diverse cultures, diverse organisations with a broad remit. Um, I like complexity, uh, you know, the challenge of working out how to get things done in organisations which are not 
straightforward to uh, to get things done in. Again, that's a common feature in different ways in all in all three of them. And the perhaps for this conversation, the thing which uh, which most unites the three is that all three organisations, Unilever, the NHS, and the Abbey here, has a very broad definition of the finance function and what it's there to do. And that's, if anything, has been the leitmotif, the single theme that's run through my career. I joined finance in the first place because it was a broad function that could do lots of things. And all of the places I've gone with finance since have been places that believe in the the central and broad function of finance in an organisation. So... If I can construct a logic, it's that one. But the reality is it's been opportunities. So I'm kind of then interested in um, just taking that step further. So you're, you're SEMA qualified. That's your professional accountancy qualification, isn't it? But yet you read modern and medieval languages at Cambridge, as you said. You know, you're a gifted linguist, studied both German and French whilst at Cambridge, and also a classically trained musician, Paul, from an early age. And all of that sort of says to me, how did you even end up doing accountancy in the first place? Because it just seems a world away from maybe where some of your natural instincts would have taken you. Well, uh, to be completely honest about it, until the age of 22, I had no clue what I was going to do as a career. Uh, I didn't stop to think about that. I was very much caught up in exploration, in, in exploring the world of in leading school, modern and medieval languages. As you say, I've always had an interest in language. I've always had an interest in literature, in exploring different cultures. And that I frankly indulged in my in my university time, really exploring all of that. The Latin, a small part of that, although it's become very useful now that I'm in an environment where Latin is really quite useful. The relevance though, because I describe it as an indulgence, is that I do think that languages and the ability to translate, to to make sense out of things and to connect people linguistically and in terms of what they understand is important to a lot of the things I've done since. So that, that skill has not been has not been wasted. But frankly, as a 22-year-old and thinking, what am I going to do next? I really had two choices, one of which would be to stay in academia and do lots of research and write books and teach people all about medieval languages and literature. That would have been a further indulgence for another 30 or 40 (laughs) years, but I didn't feel that would be quite what I wanted to do. Uh, And I couldn't quite see the the fulfilment that I would have got out of that. So as I hinted a little earlier on, finance was a way of getting into a function which gave you some credibility in the real world. The Unilever definition of finance, which was very broad, meant that you weren't constrained by that because I had no idea whether finance would be what I want to stay in in the longer term. It was just a very good way to become useful to an organisation. The finance uh, Unilever, when I joined it, didn't have anything called a finance function. It had a commercial function, which embraced finance and supply chain and a whole lot of other things. And it seemed a good way to get into uh, an organisation with real breadth, with real international interests, which for me was important, given the languages. And that proved to be a very good choice. I had a slight surprise when I started Unilever because I rather imagined that I would be working in a rather swanky office in London, uh, doing consumer goods of one sort or another. You know, it might have been perfumes, it might have been ice cream or something. And in fact, I ended up in Basingstoke uh, running an animal feeds business. <laughs> which uh, wasn't quite what I intended, but it was a great start in Unilever and um, a brilliant way for someone who frankly had a slightly rarefied academic background to be confronted rather rapidly with the real world of down-to-earth business uh, in an industry which was in 
strong decline and needed some quite sharp um, financial management to uh, to keep it on track. So, um, so that was the start of my career, but I, that's the closest I can get to a logical explanation for it. I'm really interested in talking a bit now about financial excellence. And one of the things that struck me, probably actually where I first truly got to know you when we were both at NHS England, and um, one of the things that really struck me from our early conversations was your very clear passion for financial development and innovation and your clear desire to translate some of the legacy you'd clearly left at, at Unilever and to build some firm foundations in the NHS on that footing as well. And you spent six, the last six years, I understand, at Unilever as Vice President for Financial Excellence, which I've heard you in the past describe as your dream job. You led Unilever's Global Finance for the Future program, reinvented the finance function in the way you just described. So I'd like to unpack that a little bit if I could for, for some of the listeners who'd be really interested in hearing about that. And then if you could, I'd like to go on to talk about the NHS equivalent of that, where you are absolutely instrumental in driving future-focused finance. Great, thanks. Um, so the Unilever part of the story, and this is another classic one. So this came out of happenstance, really. I came back to the UK from my last big finance director job in Germany uh, without something to do because the timing wasn't quite right. And so the Unilever hierarchy sent me off to go and do a little project, which I think they thought was going to last about six months and come up with some vaguely interesting stuff. And uh, then they could go on with finding me the proper job to do thereafter. And the reality is the job they sent me out to do was to see what finance was all, what finance could be all about for Unilever. What was the best practice across all of the companies in our sector, in other sectors? Um, how could I bring together an agenda which was what we described as finance of the future? And looking around, we stole all sorts of ideas. I mean that in a entirely uh, proper way, uh, from the best companies in every sector. And the, the fundamental question was twofold. One of them was, what are the key decisions this organisation is trying to make and how can finance help to ensure those decisions are made uh, with the best possible value outcome? It's relatively easy in a consumer goods company to work out how value is calculated. Much more difficult, as we might explore in a minute, uh, to do so in the NHS. But how do you make those decisions, those key marketing decisions, innovation decisions, etc., in a consumer goods company? And secondly, how do you liberate finance people to be the best possible professionals they can be, to have that maximum possible impact, obviously not sitting in a room somewhere on their own, but out there with the rest of the business trying to make the best decisions and make the best use of the resources. And we came up with what was a much more revolutionary agenda, I think, than the finance leadership team of Unilever had been intending. And they gave us quite a bit of resource to make that revolution happen. And you were quite right, the most exciting, the most enjoyable six years of my Unilever career were traveling around the Unilever world, helping all sorts of organizations to introduce the best possible decision-making, the best possible financial planning, and to develop the best possible people in the finance function to, uh, to make all of that work around the business um, that Unilever had. We also did things like shared services and efficiency, which are important. Uh, it's not frankly where my, what makes me most excited, but it's something that every finance function has got to do to be as efficient as it possibly could be. Uh, but it was really just liberating the best possible financial uh, support to the business. 
uh, and we created a couple of hundred really, really talented upcoming leaders in Unilever in the finance function through some quite intensive coaching, mentoring um, and development support uh, to be the, the champions of this, of this revolution in finance in Unilever. Uh, and by the end of my six years there, we'd pretty much embedded all of those uh, best practice ways of doing finance across Unilever with some quite exciting results. So you joined the NHS. You joined the NHS, first of all, in the newly created Strategic Health Authority in London. And perhaps we'll come, on, come back to your transition between, between the two in a second. But, but when you had the opportunity, particularly at, to take on the whole of the NHS in England role in the Chief Financial Officer for NHS England, you then set about what was and it still is uh, future-focused finance within within the NHS. So I could just invite you to perhaps um, give some reflections around what what your early aspirations were for for that transformation within the NHS environment, based on what you did at Unilever, and then perhaps where you left it actually at the point that you joined the Abbey, and and where you'd where you'd hope for the service to take that next. Sure, uh, and I'm delighted to see that FFF is still as. Uh as vigorous as it, uh, as, it, as it ever was. Indeed, it looks to me to be more so actually now looking at it uh, from, from outside. So I'm delighted to see that's, that's continued. I need to be very clear about this. I mean, I have a great passion for finance excellence and I hope that that comes across. Absolutely. I've got a great passion for finance development, but I found myself amongst a whole lot of people in the NHS when I moved into the national job who had a similar passion and who were very keen to work with me to do this. You know, great people like uh, Richard Douglas, like Tony Whitfield, like a few other real people who, who were steeped in what the NHS could be, some of whom had an experience of what perhaps finance had been like in previous iterations of the NHS, but shared with me a passion to bring it to the best it could possibly be. Uh, and to bring together the finance function in the NHS, which is, I think, one of our big motivations. I think there was a risk that it had got slightly dissipated over uh, a number of years. So, you know, as much as anything, this was trying to bring the finance community back together again. And then, you know, it was just very important to us that we brought the same kind of rigour to decision-making in the NHS, uh, where, you know, how you use resources is so important to the success that you have on the ground. And you can't do that centrally. I mean, there's some, there's some decision-making you can do centrally. We spent a lot of time thinking about that in NHS England. But the really important thing is that people on the ground, in hospitals, in communities, uh, in commissioning organisations, wherever the NHS was present, were making the best possible use of the money that was available to it, and indeed the other resources available to it, the people available to it, the technologies, the innovation, all of that stuff. So what I tried to do was to bring as much as possible of the thinking from the Finance of the Future project in Unilever into a set of ways of doing finance which would be appropriate for the, uh, for the NHS. And as I had great, great uh, support in that and indeed collaboration in that with people like yourself and with people like Caroline Clark and others who were prepared to take on some slightly wacky ideas potentially uh, to <laughs> shape them for the NHS because clearly the value equation in the NHS is very different from the value equation in a consumer goods business uh, and really give it a go to make it happen across the NHS. So you, you're right, Paul, absolutely to remind me, actually, to remind us that when you took on that um, 
ambition for all of us and drove, drove forward Future Focus Finance with others that actually we found ourselves, didn't we, in a period where the NHS leadership, particularly in finance, was quite fragmented. So uh, we'd moved from a system where we effectively had one finance leader to a system where we had yourself in the uh, NHS England role. We had colleagues then in Monitor, Trust Development Authority, Health Education England, and as well as the Department of Health. We were, in, we were in danger, I think, at that time of moving on to slightly different paths. And I think that piece of work for the finance community from my experience, helped to glue us back together again and keep us glued together, which was which actually uh, is easily forgotten in terms of what that set out to achieve and I think what it, what it did achieve. So reflections on where we left Future Focus Finance under your watch, as it were, and, and where, where that should go now and looking back at Unilever and the things that perhaps we didn't quite get to and where we, where we go next? Well, I... If I had my time all over again, yeah. uh, I would still do many of the things that we did in the FFF programme. Uh, I think we underbaked it in the first few years. I think we were constantly doing it on a shoestring, doing it with the goodwill of people, some of the people I talked about and many others uh, who, uh, who were keen to be part of that. Uh, we did it in partnership, obviously, with HFMA, which was a major part of what we were doing then. Um, if I had my time again, I would have put more money, more resource and more time in it because I think it took us quite a long time to get beyond the intent to bring all of those things together and make big things happen to that starting to happen. I personally underestimated the challenge of adapting ways of doing things from the consumer businesses into the more complex, and it really is more complex, world of the NHS. So uh, that took a while. So. It, it was a slower process than I would have wanted, but one that was clearly heading in the right direction in the latter part of our time together doing all of that. Um, my hope is, uh, and as I say, I've seen some very positive signs just having looked around in preparation for this conversation um, as to what was happening on FFF. I see you've now stolen the idea of a finance academy, which we is have. one of the things I set up. <laughs> Uh, in Unilever and the, the Innovation Forum, which is uh, the other half of what the Academy in Unilever was doing. Absolutely. So I'm really delighted to see that that infrastructure is being put in, put in place. Uh, and my hope, really, is that all of the rather bigger finance function that we have in the NHS compared to uh, Unilever and other places uh, feels that they are empowered to take the sorts of approaches that FFF has developed and rolled out into daily life and find the way to create the space in the agenda that people have. And I was always, when we were doing FFF, very conscious. My kind of mental image was of people who were sitting in offices desperately trying to keep everything moving along, under control, under the daily pressure that the NHS uh, feels, whether you're in the finance department or in the A&E department. And I hope people can make the space to, uh, to introduce some of these better ways of doing decision making. Uh, and I hope that that brings the kind of motivation and engagement from that large group of NHS finance folk uh, that I experienced it um, amongst those who got deeply involved in it in my time in the NHS and certainly in my time in, in Unilever as well. My sense is that's happening. You've got lots more value makers certainly than you did uh, when I left the shop, uh, as you say, two and a half years ago. And there are all sorts of other positive signs, but it needs nurturing. It needs constant reinvention. Mm. It needs re-energizing because the day job is always in danger of swamping all of the things that you'd want to do. 
um, to improve things. And as you do, St. Paul, we've uh, embarked on, under Julian Kelly's leadership now, we've, we've embarked on two national conversations around um, NHS finance uh, under the banner of One NHS Finance. And, and we've kind of regrouped the early outputs from Future Focus Finance into the new way forward. And really pleased we've got some really good people like Simon Worthington from Leeds, mm. Hardy from, um, from Barts, who's on a podcast with me just a few weeks back, and Jenny as well from Manchester Group, who are leading on the key elements, which, are, which include, of course, as you say, the Finance Academy, trying to bring that to life now, and also a financial innovation forum sat alongside that. So, so it's exciting times, I think, for the function, um, building on the legacy that you left behind, of course, um, and, you know, watch this space. Well, I'm very excited, and I'm, you've got some great people doing that work, um, including the people you've just you've just reminded me of, uh, most of whom worked with me in London for at various points. So I take all the credit for their uh, <laughs> for their future success with this. But no, it's a great group of people, and this will only ever work if you've got plenty of people who are putting their putting their their energies and their inspiration behind it. I said I'd want to take you back to, and it's a bit of a parallel here because I, I want to take you back in terms of your motivations for effectively leaving Unilever after 22 years, after six years in your dream job, and then joining the NHS. So you weren't joining the national job at that point, you were joining the London uh, Strategic Health Authority role, albeit a very significant role at a very significant time for London. And I just wonder if could you just indulge us in terms of how you made that career switch. And earlier in the conversation, if I may, Paul, in answer to my one of my earlier questions, you talked about, you said there might be some sort of difficulties and some reasons why you made some career choices along the way. So I wonder if you could just unpack that particular move from Unilever to the NHS. Sure. So that wasn't one of the examples I was giving. The, the, the first was the one I've just talked about, which was the, the finishing in Germany and doing this finance of the future job, which turned out to be a great thing to do, yeah. but wasn't certain to be so. Uh, the other one is the end of NHS London and moving into the national job, which of course came about as a result of the reforms. Of and that, the bitter part of that was it stopping many of the things that we were doing in London that were really exciting and really promising. Out of that, for me at least, and for, for others, uh, you know, there were new opportunities that came, but it, that, that, that's what I really, those are the two I instances I had in life. So the, so the move to the NHS in the first place, though, came about completely unexpectedly and not in any way at a time when I was intending to make a move from, as I say, a job that I really loved. Hmm. Uh, but I, got, I, was, I still remembered I was sitting at home um, preparing for my next trip on the Finance of the Future crusade um, and got this phone call from a headhunter that you know, one sometimes takes and sometimes doesn't, uh, saying, how do you fancy joining NHS London because they're looking for a finance director and they want something a bit different and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I have to say, I hadn't been expecting it. Um, I, the NHS was not something I'd been deeply um, kind of knowledgeable about or had much engagement with. Uh, and I had a mental image of a kind of middle tier of the NHS not being the most exciting place to spend some time as a completely ignorant person not involved with the NHS. So I didn't take it terribly seriously, but was, you know, entertained a call or two and, uh, and was drawn into it, frankly, partly because, as I mentioned, I've always had public sector roots from my family and upbringing. I was the only one of my siblings who hadn't gone into either charity or um, public sector work. Mm. Uh, so you know, there's something in the back of my mind which said, going into the public sector, and if you're going into the public sector, why not the most important public service in the country? Absolutely. Uh, second thing mm. was, I really like setting stuff up, as you might have gathered from yes. other things. And this was an opportunity to set up something which had not existed ever before, strangely. 
the Strategic Health Authority for London. Yeah. That tickled my interest. Um, the third thing was the real ambition that was there for Healthcare for London, which was just, just about to start uh, as, as this recruitment process was taking place. So the thought of transforming the health service of the nation's capital was really quite exciting. And frankly, the fourth and probably most cogent reason uh, was brilliant leadership uh, on the part of Ruth Carnell, who was the chief, chief executive of, at that time, uh, who remains a very, very, very close friend and mentor of mine throughout all of the subsequent phases. Uh, the sheer um, vision that Ruth had and the, the, if you like, the leadership clarity that she brought to it. Uh, most of my career choices have been about, do I want to go and work in that business? And equally, do I want to go and work with that set of people? Is that a group of people with whom I can work effectively, that we can gel and make great things happen? And I was drawn into the London job, really, through Ruth to join a group of people who who had a great ambition and I thought the, the capability and capacity to make that happen. And, and Ruth is such an inspirational leader, isn't she? And uh, locally here, we've had opportunity to work with Ruth in all sorts of ways, not least with our transformation of the Isle of Wight's mm. NHS service. So so then you, you moved into the CFO role in NHS England. So you talked about some of the, I think you've already started to unpack it, and some of the, the difficulties there in terms of leaving behind what you started at London, but I guess overseeing it at, a, at an albeit more significant levels. So you weren't divorcing yourself completely because obviously clearly you're moving into the next role up. So so that so, and the chance to work with Simon Stevens and everything that came with setting up a brand new entity for the whole of England for the first time for the whole of the commissioning function particularly. So that must have been, an ex- as you said, tinged with sadness, but also a very exciting time in your career. Hmm. It was a slightly scary time in my career, I have to say, because if you're trying to set up 212 or whatever it was, new organisations, new reporting for that, new accounting systems, new ways of controlling it, setting up budgets for it, goodness knows what, that could have been an almighty mess up. Mm. Thankfully, we had a good team uh, able able to do that. Uh, and we did make it through to that famous kind of hard start on the 1st of April. And it did work. A really exciting time setting all of that up and then making it, getting the value out of uh, this new organisation um, was clearly the bigger challenge once we'd survived the birth pangs of 212 plus one new organisations and um, a great experience, great experience. Mm. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, looking back, rewarded with the CBE in the 2018 New Year's Honours list for services to NHS financial management. I mean, that must have been such a proud moment for you, Paul, I'd imagine. Well, th- these, these things are always very nice when they happen. And again, it was to- totally unexpected. And um, there are many other people in the health service who deserve those sorts of honours. And uh, it, it, it was a great, great pleasure to receive it. But I received it very much as I felt it at least, uh, for what the health, the finance function in the health service was doing, rather than as a single person who'd done anything particularly heroic to make that happen. So, uh, so I see it as, an, as, a, as a reflection of the, I said, the NHS finance function, as much as anything that I might have done to deserve such a thing. And, and part of my research, one of the things I stumbled across, Paul, which there can't be many accountants that have worked in the NHS, if you uh, happen to give you that title, that have got their own Wikipedia page. <laughs> I don't even know whether you know it exists. I mean, yes, I'm not. I'm not quite sure whether that's a great, a great honour or a great distinction, or whether it's, a, <laughs> it's an oddity. But um, anyway, I'm sure it. I'm sure it is all. I'm sure it's all true, whatever it says. But no, I haven't. Uh, I haven't spent a long time looking at it. I have to say. 
So your current role at Westminster Abbey, I remember talking to you at the time that, um, or an exchange with you at the time that um, you made that decision to leave the NHS and move in, in, into Westminster Abbey. And, and again, if I might use the term dream job, I think might have been the phrase. So but I suppose I'd like to um, spend a few moments, if, if you may, talking about your initial experiences at the Abbey. I'm sure, I'm sure many of us will be keen to catch up with you and hear how that experience has gone. It's been two and a half years, as you said. I suppose, you know, the one thing I'm probably really keen to learn about is, you know, how does your average week look within Westminster Abbey, if indeed there is an average week of fourth floor? Well, there absolutely isn't. Uh, and it's, it's fair to say, um, I mean, it is a dream job and I've, I've enjoyed every minute of it in, and continue to enjoy every minute of it. Uh, that said, it's been a, it's been this is my only sporting reference of this of this uh, discussion because of course uh, my knowledge of sport is not extensive. It is a game of two halves to use that famous cliche. So uh, the first year and a bit that I was here, it was the Abbey in completely normal for the Abbey, which is abnormal for any other place mode. Um, lots and lots of big national services taking place royal family in, in and out kind of pretty much every week for some event or other. Major uh, excitement around some building projects, some exhibitions. It happened to be the 750th anniversary of the, the current Abbey's construction. So a really exciting first year thrown in at the deep end, of course, to do all of those things. And I don't think I could describe a typical week or even a typical day because it went from everything, from the normal sort of things you do as a business person, uh, whether you're in the NHS or whether you're in uh, another type of business, you know, finance, HR, running the security of the place, if that's not too scary a concept for you. Um, (laughs) And, you know, looking after a World Heritage site and all those kind of things at one end to then going along at five o'clock for a great service where you've got 2,000 people, trumpeters, all that kind of stuff, and fascinating people coming together for a commemoration of some some big event or other. So completely no typical week, some very colourful characters to work with, a really exciting time. Uh, and then, of course, the pandemic came, which was, what, about a, a year and a quarter into my time in this role. And we have become a very different place in that period of time. We still do many of the same fundamental things here, but we have a budget of only 21 million, which uh, feels a bit strange after 130 billion. Anyway, there we go. (laughs) Almost all of which comes from international tourism. So the minute that borders were closed and people stopped coming, our income stream stopped coming. And I've done a hell of a lot more finance, which I had hoped not to have to do uh, coming to the Abbey, than, uh, than I did in the first year. And it's been all about how do we preserve the things that are really important about this wonderful place? How do we keep it going long enough until the uh, international tourists, we hope, come back and we are able to do the things that we would want to do in the way that we would normally normally have done them? So it's been a very different year. Some, you know, some very big positives, but some real challenges to deal with. So thankfully, uh, you know, finance is not altogether new to me and therefore I've been able to with the help of my excellent finance director that I have here and the team that we've got to uh, to steer our way through some really, really difficult times. You, you talked about the finance function there a few times. You said you've got a finance director and a, fi- small, and a finance team. Could you just tell us a bit what that looks like there at the Abbey then? Well, it's... It's it's a big business. So we've got uh, we've got three hundred employees and four hundred 
volunteers to look after and as I say a big a big enterprise uh, and some very successful commercial enterprises that are linked to it. So we have a very small finance team, it's six people uh, plus the finance director who's also my deputy as chief executive effectively of the Abbey. I see. So that is the finance team. I recruited the finance director as I was arriving because as it happened uh, as I was arriving there was a vacancy so uh, I've been able to recruit and then uh, work very closely with a, with an excellent finance director all the way through this. The Abbey is a wonderful place for attracting people with a real talent to come along and do it because people get the buzz of working in a place like this. And as a business, it's quite a small business. You know, 21 million doesn't go very far in the NHS, for example. But it's, it's a very vibrant organisation. It's got a very central role in national life. So you are able to bring in people of talent to, uh, to do the sorts of jobs that you need done. My next question, I suppose, really is around just bringing it back to you personally as a leader. So clearly you've had a variety of roles and we've not begun to even unpack that. But just again, just taking the Unilever NHS Westminster Abbey. What, is, what do you think possibly is the sort of one thing about your style and approach, Paul, that has stood you in good stead throughout your career that's been able you to make those quantum leaps, what appear to be quantum leaps between those very different organisations along the way? Gosh, I don't think I can encapsulate that in one thing. Um, I, the first thing I would say is a degree of calm and ability to absorb hard work, stressful things, um, things that don't go right, um, difficult problems to solve. I actually rather relish problem solving, uh, but I don't get stressed by it. Uh, and that's been important throughout my career because I've done a lot of things where things have to be done under quite significant pressure and with things coming from all possible directions to be uh, to be to be sorted through um, so I don't know what I did to enable me to do that but it is it is a it is a facet that's helped me through the second thing which I think goes to the heart of this what's finance all about or at least one aspect of what finance is all about is that I do enjoy taking large amounts of information processing them pattern forming, pattern solving. So working, working out what does all of that mean and then developing solutions and opportunities and ways of making the best possible use of whatever the thing is that we're talking about. And that's, that I've found also to be both stimulating and it's really important in any career that you find what you're doing stimulating because otherwise not many of us want to do it for very long. Uh, but also a means of getting things done reasonably quickly because... You can do all of that pattern forming and then get on with making a difference. And those two things um, I have found to be key to what I've done in each of the jobs that we've been talking about. The other completely different side, Mark, is that any of us who do jobs which are full on in one way or another, and that's almost certainly everyone listening to this particular conversation, because we don't have jobs in the NHS which are not pretty full on, you need something in life to balance that off, to be the other thing that you do that is so compelling that you can put aside all of that, at least for a period of time, and focus completely on something mm. different. And the thing that I've had throughout the whole of my life, let alone my career, uh, is music. You know, that's clearly why the Academy of Ancient Music is something that I'm putting effort into. But it's personally something which brings me enormous satisfaction, but also enables me to, um, as well, just for a period of time, to put aside the stresses and strains, the, the things I've got running around in my mind that need to be sorted out, dealing with the frustrations and setbacks that we all have in a typical week, 
uh, and just for that period of time focusing on something really different and more to me at least um, speaks more to my emotions and to my to my inner life if you like rather than continuing with all of that stuff I was going to go on to work-life balance I think you've already answered my question um, you know classically trained musician from an early age organist member of various uh, chamber choirs now at the Abbey, I guess you get a chance to bring some of that together in one place, mm. uh, I'm assuming? Yes. It is quite extraordinary here, because of course I live here as well as working here, which is, a, which really? is an enormous privilege, which is part wow. of it. So there is a risk with that, which is that the whole of my life is... what One could spend the whole of one's life in a fairly narrowly defined set of precincts. Uh, you know, I have a one-minute mm. commute from my house to my office... But it does bring together all of the things that I find I need to uh, to have a fulfilled life. It you know there, it, there's lots of fascinating work to be done. Uh, there's a wonderful setting in which to do that work. There is the music and the liturgy, so the the worship, the faith that is important to me as well. Um, and there is the ability for this to be a base from which I then do other things across London that that uh, speak to my to, to my interests. So. This feels like a very integrated way of life, which brings together work and those other things. Whereas in the past, there was a, whatever it was, 45-minute commute uh, between the delights of Elephant and Castle and the outskirts of uh, the M25, uh, which separated that kind of working life and the mm. stuff that I did outside. And of course, you also lay claim to some th- uh, thespian credentials as well. Um, I remember, oh, here it comes! Uh, here it comes! Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I ju- I've lost track of the number of times I might have played this to colleagues who may not have realised that you're in the, the TV detective series Morse. So you've now ruined my normal. You know that quiz where you, you know, the, the icebreaker <laughs> is tell me something that no one else knows about you, and that was tended to be the one I used because it was fairly safe. And you've now blown my cover. But, uh, <laughs> I did. Yes, that was one of the first things I did after coming out of university, and it paid for a summer holiday, which was really rather fun. Um, and, and, and you know, it, it is—it was a very exciting experience. We did, had no idea at that point whether Inspector Morse was going to become a, a big thing or a small thing. It was just another television program that someone asked us as a choir to uh, to take part in. Uh, and of course, it's become what it's become. But. Uh, well, Paul, with, with the benefit of experience and looking back on such a distinguished career, I wonder if there's one thing that you would perhaps say to your younger self, or indeed if there's one thing you've learned about your career that you would like to, to say to anyone listening to this podcast that might be embarking on the early stage of their career. I wonder what that would be. I think I would say, don't worry about career. I mean, I know that's easy to say when you are some way through a career as opposed to at the start of it. Um, if you make the best use of every opportunity that you're given, and if you select those opportunities as they come up with a clear set of understandings as to what you're looking for in roles, um, I have always found that you can make a career work for you. Uh, I, I find it personally unhelpful to think, well, once I've done this job, what's the one that's going to lead to, and what's the one after that, and what do I need to put together to do that? Now, of course, as a finance person, you've got to assemble a career that's got the right ingredients so that you can be around whatever you want to become in, in, in future. But I think agonising over career is always, always the wrong thing to do. I also think I worried more in the early stages of my career about is this going well enough and fast enough? Hmm. You know, and and th- that, I think, I, is, is also a fallacy. Uh, I was checking this. I had 
seven jobs in nine years in, at the start of my career. What went with that was nine houses in 16 years, nine wow. house moves in 16 years. It all went very fast and it was all very exciting. And I, I think I might have come to think of that as being, well, that's the way that you're obviously learning and kind of moving through things. Um, I've done since then three jobs in 17 years uh, and I found that just as fulfilling, if not more fulfilling. So um, I think there's something about just not being restless about a career. As long as you're doing a job that you're enjoying, as long as you're doing a job with a group of people that you are working well with, and as long as you're learning. And right now, every day, I learn something at the moment about this wonderful place. But when I was in the NHS, there was not a day when I didn't learn something uh, about, about the NHS. And all the while you feel you're doing that, uh, I just think one can relax a little bit more than I felt I did in the early stages about uh, uh, career planning and whether it was all going well enough and all that kind of thing. Now, Paul, we, um, we we like to end these podcasts with a bit of a quick fire round, a bit of a fun, you know, just a few fun questions. No reason, no explanation needed. Just, you know, whatever comes into your mind first. I'm just going to throw three questions at you, if that's okay. So the first one is, what would be your perfect weekend? Well, well, so I now have pretty much every weekend perfect because it's full of wonderful music in a wonderful place. But um, actually, we recently acquired, just before Christmas, uh, two wonderful rescued Saluki dogs oh, wow. who are keeping us young and fresh um, in, in a way we hadn't quite anticipated. So actually my perfect weekend now is getting out and about with my wife and with the two dogs and just seeing parts of the countryside that we haven't uh, seen before. And, um, you know, they, they have slightly changed our perspective on um, what, a, what a good weekend is all about. Excellent. OK, all right. Um, when was the last time you laughed out loud? I don't do that a lot. Gosh, that's fascinating. Um, I do watch quite a lot of funny programmes. I mean, it's t typically if, I, if I've finished work late, yeah. I will watch whatever's on TV that is funny. I don't laugh out loud at them. I find them internally amusing. But, uh, so, so, what, so, gosh, that's a, that's a bad answer to your question, isn't it? I can't remember. No. So what's, what's the, what sort of TV programmes do you watch that make you, make you laugh and smile after work then? Um, well, I've got a fairly classical taste, so uh, any, anything that involves Blackadder or um, Faulty Towers or those sorts of things, I, I still find, although I can now recite any of those programmes, I suspect pretty, pretty well word for word, um, <laughs> uh, I, find those, I find those to my taste. And my third question, I, did, I know I snuck an extra bonus one in there, Paul, but the third question was, what makes you most happy? Well, I'm afraid it goes back to an earlier answer. Um, the times I'm most happy are when I am experiencing music at its, at its best possible level, in the right place, in the right context, preferably in the context of a church service, when it just comes together, for me at least, to be a, a really uplifting and inspiring experience. And happily, I get plenty of those at the moment. Paul, um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for giving up part of your day to have this conversation. And I look forward to um, continuing to watch that Wikipedia account of yours grow in terms of all, all your achievements. So thank you. I just want to say thank you for having me. It's been fascinating. It's, it's exciting to talk about these sorts of things. And you learn all sorts of things in answering your questions that you don't often have the time to just sit back and, and think about. So thanks for this opportunity. Most of all, though, thank you to you and thank you to all of the colleagues that around the NHS uh, for all the wonderful things that you are doing. I realise this is a time of real stress for the NHS. 
uh, and as much for the finance people as for any other people trying to keep this wonderful organization going. So thank you for all you're doing to, uh, to do such a brilliant job. And I wish you all well. So Paul, thank you so much. And thank you to everyone listening in and for choosing HFMA Talk in conversation with. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to keep up to date with future episodes. And if there is anyone that you'd like me to have a conversation with as part of this podcast series, then do get in touch via policy at hfma.org.uk. But until next time, goodbye.